Hello everybody, what is up? Welcome back to High Story. You know who I am by now, you know what we do here. I'm Matt, I am the host and occasional co-host of the show. Got my spirit animal right here in my lap right now, she's purring. She's giving me the energy that I need to get on with the show today, so come on in, get in here. I've got a really interesting story for you today. But before that, go do all the free stuff, all ratings, reviews, tweets, whatever you can, wherever you can, all that fun stuff. Uh, I'm going to leave links for in the show notes for Patreon, PayPal, if anyone wants to do that. But beyond that, I don't really have a whole lot of business to get to today, but I am excited for my new work schedule. I'm going to be there just a little bit less, so sorry to all my regulars, but that will allow me to do this just a little bit more, put a little more time into it, because I would really like to turn this into a job at some point. That'd that'd be fun if I could pay my bills with my creativity. So I want to just jump right in this week. I've got a slightly different perspective than a lot of places you can find information about this case, and I might ruffle a few feathers here and there. Might not, I don't know. But, maybe. I began this week's research early Monday morning, and it made me so angry going through all the articles that I could find about it, and I was mad. I was I was so mad. I was in a weird mood all week at work. I was mad at everything for nothing, but as the week went on, the more I thought about it, and, you know, I can't really be mad at anybody just for not knowing the whole story, and that's really what I aim to do here today. So strap in, might go a little bit long this week, but I promise to make it enjoyable. Plus, I get to roast my home state of Oklahoma this week, and on that note, Oklahoma listeners, relax, you know it sucks there. Let's embrace the shared suckiness together and go have some fun. We're going to go over the mysterious and often glossed over case of Bobby Parker and Randolph Dial. Everywhere you look, it's framed as though Bobby Parker was complicit in helping Dial escape from the prison he was in, and that they were in some kind of relationship for the duration of the abduction. I'm going to call it an abduction instead of an escape because, well, it was more of an abduction than an escape. Bobby was in no way, shape, or form a willing participant for any part of this, regardless of what you might think. And Dial has said multiple times that everything was his doing and his idea, and that Bobby wanted no part in it. Now, I understand that many people out there have a different opinion than I do, and I also understand how those of you with a different opinion have come to your conclusion. Some of you may not want to believe it, because honestly, any way you look at it, this case is fucking insane all the way through. And I don't want it to seem like I'm taking this stance just to be contradictory, but I am going to contradict a lot of what people say about it. And that's because of the finer details that I'm going to go over with you today that are often left out. Like, if you were to see a headline for this case, or just the biggest details about it, plastered on a semi-truck driving down the road, at a cursory glance it might seem like a fair question. Were you in love? Did you plan to run away together? What have you? But when you zoom in and really look at what happened... To me, at least, it's a very clear but chaotic timeline of events. And at no point in this entire story can I actually believe she's participating of her own free will. As messy as it is, this is a case of Stockholm Syndrome. Albeit pretty extreme. And I'd like to at least lay out the actual story for people to draw their own conclusions from. And if some miracle should occur, for what it's worth... Bobby Parker, if you happen to ever listen to this, 
or anyone listening on behalf of Bobby Parker, I believe you, and I hope I do right by you in telling your story. So now that I've grabbed the attention of YouTube commenters and bored from work Oklahomans, let's talk about some crazy true Oklahoma bullshit. The abduction of Bobby Parker. Preface, I'm from Oklahoma. We'll just say Tulsa because no one has ever heard of where I'm actually fucking from. Sky took. Where? Exactly. If you live in Oklahoma currently and you still don't know where that is, well, join the club and you're not missing much anyway. Oh, real quick, nerd alert. Nerd alert. If you didn't know, you can download a Kindle app on your phone for free and then download anything straight to your library and read it on your phone. Turns out I didn't need to buy a Kindle to read this book. This book was written by Randolph Franklin Dial about what happened sometime after his arrest in 2005. It's called In the Wind. But a lot of what he writes is kind of hard to believe, save for a couple of moments that happen to line up just with what other people have said. And the hilarious ladies over on You're Doing Fine, Oklahoma, also read the book, or have a Kindle, I'm not sure, and they did an awesome job covering this as well. So if you like me, you'll probably like them as well. And if Shy and Shanna should pop in to listen, hi, you made me laugh, so free plug. So let's get to know the first person in our story today, just a, a real good old boy, Randolph Dial. Or he probably says it, Randolph Dial. Dial. We're going to refer to him as Dial, so we don't confuse him with Randy Parker, Bobby's husband and the deputy warden. But, you know I love my time machine, so we got to go back to 1944 for a brief moment, and then very quickly back up to 1981. Dial was born in Tulsa in 1944. Me too, except much, much later. He studied art at some point in Mexico City, was married maybe a handful of times, has a questionable amount of offspring, managed an art gallery in Galveston at one point. But beyond that, there's not a ton on his earlier years. Even in the book, he just sort of glosses over some vague details about growing up, and most of what he says in his own words about himself sounds made up to sound cool. Except for this part's true, at least. Uh, if you're a fan of the show Dallas... There, the oil derrick statue on J.R. Ewing's desk was made by this guy. I don't know, I've never seen it, but if you watched the show back then when it was on, I hope your lower back doesn't hurt today. Dial was a sociopath, a manipulator, a schemer, and a charmer. He could talk anybody into doing just about anything because he was that kind of guy. Just a likable dude, like most sociopaths are. If you're likable, people will tend to do stuff for you. You know who else was a charming sociopathic manipulator? Uh, Literally every serial killer you've ever heard of. Oh, yeah. Not saying Dial is a serial killer, because as far as I know, he only killed one person, but he definitely shares a lot of parallels. What's strange is, right up until this day in question, he's relatively unnoticed on the police radar. Very minimal interactions with law enforcement. He doesn't seem to have done a whole lot to garner much attention from the police. In fact, he claims to have helped with several drug busts for various law enforcement agencies, but I don't believe him on that one. He's not a cop. I'm sure he's somewhere in the vicinities of the fringes of society. He's a starving artist. It's Oklahoma in the 80s. There's not a whole lot going on. Still today, not a whole lot going on. And then one day, get this everybody, and then one day, yeah, September 16th, 1981, uh-huh. Dial goes over to a man's house. Okay. 
a man named Kelly Hogan. Go on. He's a karate instructor from Broken Arrow. Right. And he knocks on the door. Yeah. And when Hogan opens the door, he shoots him 37 times in the chest. Dial. Okay, he didn't shoot him 37 times, but he did shoot him with a 38. And the police are stumped. A man is shot to death on the front porch of his own home. Nobody saw shit. And the police... Ah, we got nothing, guys. I don't know what that voice was. And likely would have never gotten anything if not for another seemingly random act by Dial. What? When he calls the police five years later in 1986 and confesses to the murder. Why did he do that? Who fucking knows, really, but his reason is amazing. It's even crazier than the main story I'm going to tell today. So he's 42 at this point in 1986. Think about the 42-year-old barfly at wherever you normally get drunk. If you drink responsibly and at home, just picture your friend that does this. And if you live in Oklahoma, I don't know, picture your uncle or cousin or something. You're probably right. We all know someone who does this super annoying party trick. There's one in every fucking family, every friend group. The person who just makes up wild shit about themselves to sound interesting so they can have someone to talk to. We all know that guy. Real quick, tell me what that guy has said to you over on Twitter, at FunnyBaldWaiter. The shit Dial says is just incredible. He claims to have connections with powerful people in pretty much every organization you can imagine. Secret Service, Police, Military, FBI, CIA, ATF, BRB, LOL, G2G, the Mafia. First of all, fucking no. There's no Mafia in Oklahoma. Why the fuck would there be? And second, none of those agencies give a shit about a mediocre redneck sculptor from Tulsa. Anyway, while he was living in Tulsa, he gets a call from one of his supposed connections. This person, I'm going to call him Conman. Conman says that Kelly Hogan was selling drugs to his karate students, one of whom was the teenage son of Dial. Revenge! So Dial calls Kelly and threatened him, and Kelly said, What's up? Bring it on. Meet me at the flagpole 3 o'clock after school, pussy. I got a black belt. And Dial said, Okay, and brought it because, as we know, he had a gun. Dial, as we also know, was the winner, because gun. He blasts him in the chest with a thirty-eight, left for dead. And he has no remorse when confessing to the police either. He feels totally justified. Evidently, as long as you're not on drugs, you can justify anything you do up to and including random porch murder. And he lived with that justification for five years, and didn't even bat an eye until he calls Oklahoma police from Vegas to confess. In 1986, Dial somehow hears, remember the person who told him that Kelly Hogan had been selling drugs to his students? Remember Con Man from just a few seconds ago? Dial heard through the grapevine Con Man lied about Kelly selling drugs because Con Man wanted revenge on Kelly. So, Con Man calls Dial and tells Dial that Kelly is selling drugs to his kid because Con Man knows that Dial hates drugs. So why the revenge? Hold on, that's an excellent question. During a sparring match Conman once had with Kelly, Conman got thrown too hard, somehow landed on his dick, and injured himself so bad that he couldn't get it up anymore. How the fuck does that happen? The only way that happens is if you already have a boner when you start fighting. Don't do karate with boners! And supposedly Dial just heard that around. That Conman was now suffering from ED... And that's why he lied to Dial about Kelly selling drugs so he could go Dial into shooting him. 
you know, playing off his emotions. No, dude. That's just some more shit you made up. Well, see, Mike and Joey and me, we was talking and came around to the part where we talk about our dicks. You know how we do it? Sign respect. No. Listen. Listen. I don't know about other guys, but I don't normally talk about or really ever even think about other guys' dicks. I barely think about my own dick. It's usually there when I need it, so I'm not really thinking about it a lot. And I'm not totally sure how you would just hear that floating around. It's not exactly bar chatter. And by the way, he's in Vegas, so who the fuck is talking about some random dude's faulty cock in Oklahoma from a thousand miles away in the desert? Yeah. And this is fun. This is just a random book detail I couldn't quite find a place for. He says, one day, eh, one day, no. (laughs) You fucking hick. He says, one day when he opened the door to his duplex in Tulsa, sometime between 81 and 86, it's hard to follow. He's a bad writer, too. He found himself looking at two very serious suits from the Secret Service inside his house as they were waiting inside his house. No. No, they weren't. The Secret Service is mainly concerned with matters of national security, none of which are inside your shitty Tulsa duplex. But that's just the story that Dial said made him call the police. He wasn't selling drugs at all. I was just tricked into killing by a dickless karate scrub. I've been had. I have to confess. That's not what he told the police, though. He tells the police he was hired by a Tulsa businessman for $5,000 to kill Hogan as a contract killer for the mafia, and of course does not give a name. Once again, you absolutely were not contracted by the mafia in fucking Tulsa to kill a karate teacher that, by all accounts, most people actually liked. Well, yeah, he sold drugs. And especially not for $5,000 doll hairs. Couple of things. If it sounds like a reasonable amount to spend on a murder, that's not real. Whether you're earning it or spending it, if your first thought is, eh, not bad. That's not a real hitman. It's not a real guy. And I'm sure he said 5000 because that seems like a lot to an artist. We're often pretty broke. I'm literally in my closet with a cat in my lap right now. And the only mafia or mob in Tulsa is the G-Mob, which I think we went over in a previous episode. Those are the grown men on bikes with meth and crack backpacks. He stole my huffy. So Dial is then extradited back to Oklahoma, sentenced to life with parole for first-degree murder, serving out his sentence in Granite, Oklahoma for about seven years. Now we get to meet Bobby and Randy, and Randy will be the deputy warden, Bobby's husband. Dial is Randolph Dial murderer and schemer just to avoid confusion since they have the same name fucking oklahoma bobby parker was born in 1962 in kansas where she grew up on a farm pretty normal childhood not a whole lot nothing out of the ordinary she eventually goes off to college to ou where she meets randy and the two were married by 82 oh this is fun they had two little girls that they named are you ready for this oh i'm so ready bobby and randy Named their two daughters, Robbie and Brandy. That's awesome. Bobby, Randy, Robbie, Brandy. Bobby, Randy, Robbie, Brandy. Say that five times fast. (laughs) It's hard. That's a fun one. I like that. That's fun. Randy had worked in corrections and had quickly been promoted up the ladder to deputy warden by the time he was 30. Bobby was a school teacher and often worked with special needs inmates, too. She was damn good at her job because she got Teacher of the Year award. What? What? They also lived in a house just outside the walls of the Oklahoma State Reformatory where Dial was a prisoner 
Kinda. He didn't have much supervision to speak of, we'll find out. When Bobby and Randy first arrived at the prison, Dial had already served out seven years of his life sentence, and he'd long since earned the friendship of the warden, Jack Cowley. And pretty much as soon as they got there, Dial would be consistently in the orbit of the Parkers. During that seven years, Dial had become close with the warden, and in doing so had earned himself a whole host of privileges. The warden, Jack Cowley, was extremely pro-inmate too, which Dial took full advantage of, used it to charm his way into getting to do all kinds of shit other prisoners didn't get to do. It just so happens that as the Parker family was getting situated in their new home outside the prison, Dial was working on converting an old cell on the east side of the prison. Cowley had asked him to turn the unused space into a workout facility for the prison staff and their family to use. Randy had arrived at the home just a short while before Bobby had gotten settled into their new place. I guess she had some loose ends to tie up in their old place. Probably packing up old extra stuff, closing out accounts. Transferring schools is probably a pain in the ass in the 90s. It wasn't digital. It's a pain in the ass now, but I can't imagine back 30 years ago. Anyway, immediately whenever she does get there, Dial takes notice of her while she's making the rounds with her husband. And so would begin a nightmarishly long year of incredibly awkward meetings between the two. In the book, Dial goes over almost a year's worth of interactions with her, almost all of which read like a poorly remembered fantasy he once had, or a story he'd tell to sound cool, or like how he's writing a book and thinks people will actually want to buy it, so he makes up stuff that he thinks sounds believable. For the moment, though, life in 1993 is largely uneventful for the Parkers. Randy would walk to work in the morning, 200 yards across the fence in the blistering Oklahoma sun. It's so fucking hot there. It's just as bad as where I am now, but you get the full range of all the shit parts of all the weather. It's way too hot. I've been in zero degree and 115 degree weather in the same year in the same fucking town. Ugh. Sorry, I got sidetracked there. Randy would walk to work in the morning, and then he would have his normal prison day, regular meetings with staff, prison officials, the warden, chaplain, you know, doing deputy warden stuff. You know, you get it. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? I don't. Meanwhile, Bobby would take care of the home. <laughs> I'm sorry. God, I'm an idiot. Meanwhile, Bobby would take care of the home, get the girls ready for school, go do her thing, and occasionally use the workout facility while trying and failing to avoid dial. Just living life. Nothing huge to speak of. Not really. Pretty normal day-to-day, -day, just trying to get through it. You know, I've almost forgotten what a normal day feels like. I've worked retail and food service for... Bye, Tish. I'll see you later. I've worked retail and food service for just about 20 years now, and... If you know, you know. Normal is a pretty rare and honestly kind of boring occurrence in the restaurant industry. But where I work, Wednesdays always are pretty fun. We call them Weird Wednesdays. Yeah, real original. Hush. Sometimes, guests will, instead of asking for a fortune cookie, with words like an adult human, they'll just make like a loud grunting sound that vaguely sounds like fortune cookie. And this Wednesday, one of my guests asked very politely for a cookie, and I took notice and told them exactly what I just told you. When I got to the word grunt, the lady spat out her drink, the glass slips out of her hand, 
hits the plate, the glass explodes, sending glass flying everywhere. After making sure she's not bleeding, she's totally fine. She opens her fortune cookie, and there's fucking nothing inside. So if you happen to see me in person at work, just know that that's a true story that lives in my head rent-free now, and I just wanted to share that with you and take a little break. What do you say we, uh, let's go over some of Dial's privileges that I mentioned a little while ago. He was assigned to be the lawn guy at the Parker's home, which he talked his way into. He was placed in charge of tidying up Randy's office, which he talked his way into. That cell he converted? He was allowed to live in there, completely unsupervised, and no locks on his doors. And he was not required to be present for head counts. He could just call from his cell where he's all alone. And they know he's a murderer. Mm-hmm. Oh, what the fuck? Another thing he was privileged with, not having to leave the room when the warden or anybody else would have meetings with various staff members. So keep in mind that during, over the course of the next year, I wrote during the over the course of the next year, I'm leaning into it, Dial has been eavesdropping on everything and picked up a lot of useful information that he can use to his advantage inside the prison walls. He becomes a bit of an information dealer, using what he can using what he knows to trade money for whatever and just other prison shit. His favorite place to hang out, though, was the workout room he'd built. Why do you think that might be? Because Bobby... Because Bobby Parker would visit the gym about three times a week trying to get in shape for the holidays. That's what I was going to say. And at this point in the book, by the way, I'm starting to wonder if he might also be a pedophile because the way he describes meeting one of her daughters really makes it sound like he wants to fondle a child. He says, quote, I'm not going to like this, am I? Her natural beauty, perfect little white teeth, olive complexion, and onyx eyes had Ew. left me struggling for words. Dude, she's seven. And then he goes on to say about Bobby, quote, She wasn't beautiful like her daughter, but she was very pretty. My dude, what the fuck? Sweet fuck, that's an actual quote. Bobby had been going to the gym pretty frequently. Sometimes with a gossipy friend, sometimes other times alone. And Dial had been inserting himself into these gym visits and began to think of himself as a bit of a personal trainer by now, sometimes walking alongside her on the track. The way he describes it is a lot more intimate, but in the actual world that you and I occupy, she more than likely just politely tolerated his presence. Probably because, oh yeah, he's in prison for murder. There's another part in the book that's described in vaguely specific details that sound kind of believable, but it seems more like he wrote down a specific fantasy that he had and just said it as a thing that did happen. He says one day the two were walking around the track in the gym, and out of nowhere, Bobby just starts ugly crying in front of him because uh -huh. she was passed over for a new job. I don't think that happened. I think he probably just overheard somebody talking about it, or found a file on her husband's desk since, you know, he's in there all the time cleaning shit. Yeah, he's creepy. And then crafted a fantasy in his head where he, she confides in him and cries because why else would she do that if she secretly loves me and, nah, 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 and, this, and making this shit up and leaning into it. And this would go on for the better part of a year. A weekly cycle of Dial misinterpreting any positive interaction as a sign of interest. This is kind of how the whole debate later gets started, but first... Men! Men? Men. I'm going to say that last part again, 
and pause for just a beat longer than normal. Misinterpreting any positive interaction as a sign of interest. I cannot tell you how many times I've done the exact same thing. And guys, all, all you men out there, you know you've done that too. We can be so stupid sometimes, so fucking dumb sometimes. And I'm still pretty dumb. I've gotten a lot less dumb lately, but I'm still working on it. It's normal. It just happens to some of us. But what definitely isn't normal is diving so deep into your own fantasy that you start telling other inmates that you're in a relationship. That's a lie and a super creepy one. Don't do this. You know, in fact, this goes for everybody, myself included. If you've ever started a thought about a love interest with Maybe that secretly means just stop it. Go eat something, go to bed, start over. You'll know. Anyway, so now we have a free-range convicted murderer with no supervision and virtually unlimited access to everything inside the prison, a hard-working mother of two and an educator who's trying to stay in tip-top shape and just live her life despite somebody's persistent attempts at companionship, and a deputy warden who's trying his best to maintain an active and productive prison staff while simultaneously keeping an eye on Dial. And if you remember, I mentioned Dial was also the lawn guy at the Parker's house? Yeah, how was he able to do that? He can do that, because in April 1994, Dial had his security risk status lowered to minimum and granted trustee status, which also looks really good on paper when you go in front of the parole board with your new warden super best friend. Lovely. This meant that he now had permission to temporarily leave the prison and go out into the real world where other people who aren't murderers live. And being the lawnmower, he's just at their house all the time now. Doing chores, sure, but also going inside and looking through all their stuff. All their stuff. All her stuff. Oh, gross. He was in the garage and noticed how large and spacious it was. And then his mind flashes back to that stupid fucking sculpture on JR's desk, and a scheme is hatched in Dial's tiny, tiny brain. His delusional, numbed by years of prison life, tiny, tiny, medically fascinating how it's that tiny brain, convinces Warden Cowley to set up a pottery studio in their garage. Oh, and he even made a deal with a local vendor somehow to sell the pieces too. He's a charmer, remember? Dial, of course, had talked Cowley into placing Bobby as the Pottery Studio sponsor. I'm not certain what that actually means, but she had no interest in being alone with this guy in her garage. In her Dateline interview, she said, It's never a good idea to be alone with an inmate. And she would always insist on doing pottery stuff out in the front yard where anybody can see, you know, where there's witnesses. And I don't know if I believe him on this next part, but it seems like something he might do. Unclear as to when, but... During the prior premeditated prison pottery program stuff, Dial says he made a move on Bobby, thank you, that he kissed her and rubbed his wiener on her leg against her will. And since she didn't instantly stab him with the closest thing, that must mean she loves me! Okay, guys, just stop it. No. I don't know. I don't know if he did that, but it sounds... I don't know. Maybe. Maybe on that one. Then on August 30th, 1994, Granite, Oklahoma. It's bleak, it's hot, it's barren. There's nothing here besides the prison, basically. 
Dial's already at the Parker house mowing the lawn. You know, I would have been five years old when this was going on. I don't remember much from being five, but I'm positive it was something stupid like 114 degrees outside where I was. It's August in Oklahoma. You know it's stupid right then. It's so hot. Randy walks the usual 200 yards to the prison for work in the morning. After the kids go off to school for the day, Bobby tends to the house for a little while, making Randy lunch, etc. And then she leaves for a little while to go do deputy warden wipe stuff. I don't know. Then Dial makes his way over to the empty house. He makes a pitcher of tea and dissolves eight 10 milligram Valium into it and then waits for Bobby to return. Where did he get Valium? Probably traded some information for it to another inmate. You can get shit in prison. She comes back a short time later, a little surprised he's still there, and then Dial pours them both a glass of delicious sleepy time tea. He keeps her glass full, but barely sips any of his own glass. And she's losing consciousness fast. Dial then beats her with a belt, binds her wrists and ankles, threatens her more, saying that the people he knows, there he goes with his connections again, can and will do worse if, he, if she tries anything. He picks her up, carries her to her minivan, and then drives away. A couple hours later, when Randy comes home for lunch around noon, he finds a note. It says, went shopping, sandwich in the fridge. Alright, cool. No problems here, obviously. Just gonna eat my sandwich. Then one of his daughters calls him at 4.45, asking where mommy is. She's not home yet. He says she's gone shopping and that she'll be back soon. Dude. Fifteen minutes later, five o'clock rolls around, Bobby still isn't home. Five hours later in Granite, Oklahoma. Okay, where the fuck can you go for five hours in the southwest corner of shit-ass nowhere? I mean, really. Randy, thinking quickly now, says, wait a minute. Dial was at the house this morning. So he calls the prison. Hey, uh, listen, have you seen Randolph Dial? No? Big surprise, no. No one has seen him. When they went to go check on his cell, it was empty. And nobody bothered looking for him because, oh yeah, he wasn't required to be present for head counts. So as far as everybody else knows, it's business as usual at the Oklahoma State Reformatory where they let at least one murderer walk around completely unsupervised for an entire calendar year. Great job, warden fuckface. Randy naturally starts to get worried that something may have happened and reports the escape around 9 p.m. A few days later, her minivan was found in Wichita Falls, Texas, 108 miles from Granite, Oklahoma. During the two days between the escape and the van being found, Bobby was allowed to make two phone calls. She called a friend the day after the escape, said, don't interrupt. I only have 15 seconds. I'm okay. Tell the girls I'm okay. I love them. Everything's gonna be fine. And then some crying and it cuts out. She's able to call her mother. Call goes the exact same way. Very short phone calls, likely on purpose to keep them from being traced. And that's the last we see of Bobby for almost 11 years. We will hear from her briefly in 1998, but it's not exactly uplifting news. Authorities are trying to find out what the hell happened and where they went when they get a call in September just a couple of weeks later. A man matching Dial's description was seen at an art gallery in Galveston, Texas, which totally tracks, and a woman that could be Bobby except that she had blonde hair, but that doesn't track so close. There's no possible way her hair color could have changed so drastically in such a short amount of time. 
Damn it. Really? Sarcasm again? Yeah, sarcasm. Whatever. Oh, this part caught me off guard in the book. Sometime before or after the Galveston trip, they find themselves at the Lamb of God Mission and Homeless Shelter in 1994. If you go there now, it's just a church over in Umble, but it appears to be operating over in the same name. He mentions uh, Lockwood Drive, but I think it's the one just a couple blocks away from there. It's right by the airport and like five major highways. He goes on to describe the northeastern part of Houston, the Umble area. Yeah, we say it wrong. Kind of still the same problems now. Construction problems, drugs, drug-related violent crimes, prostitution, gambling, sex, sops. All still kind of sounds like Umble today. Oh, and then this motherfucker actually says about them being where they are. He says, What the? Sorry, that was my finger. Oh, gross. Now we were sharing a new life together. We were warm. Our stomachs were full. We were grateful. Reality seemed to take on a fuzzy, slow-motion, dreamlike quality. Go fuck yourself, dude. What the fuck? Does any part of what you've heard so far sound like a situation you would be grateful for? No, man. You were grateful that you had an opportunity to violently take advantage of someone and escape from prison, which you were in for murder. First degree. Then in 1998, four years later, a man named Charles Sasser writes a book about Dial. It's called At Large, The Life and Crimes of Randolph Dial. I didn't read that one. I don't have time for two books. I'm not a librarian. But from what I can gather, it seems to be a lot more speculation on the author's part, which isn't too surprising, really, since he can't talk directly to Dial, and there isn't a whole lot out there about him today. And as I mentioned previously, even Dial's hard to believe in the book that he wrote, so who knows. But that didn't stop old Dial from reaching out to, our, to his new author friend. After hearing about the book, probably from some dirty motel and sun-blasted shithole Texas, he gets a rager, goes full mast after hearing about somebody writing a book about him and decides, I have to call and talk to this man and confirm everything in this book. And that's exactly what he does. Ego, boner, and all. Dial calls Sasser, and the two spoke for over an hour. In his book, Sasser claims that Bobby is a willing participant, and Dial calls to confirm and says, everything you said in your book is exactly right, and that is exactly what happens. He also is allowed to speak to Bobby Parker for a few moments, but I'm pretty sure it was she was told what to say. She says she's happy, she's everything's fine, and she didn't know if getting in touch with her family was worth it because she doesn't know if it would cause an issue. And, you know, maybe it's probably better to let them keep thinking I'm dead, which is so goddamn sad, man. That's oh, I'm so sure he told her exactly what to say on the phone. And from this point on... There's a ton of speculation in the media about what's going on here. Between the book and the interviews with other inmates, many people are starting to think that Bobby ran away with him on purpose and that now the two were in love. That's not what Just a couple of problems here, though. The inmate interviews. Inmates, not exactly the most credible source of information. Probably would say anything if they thought it could help them out in some way. They have nothing. They're in prison. They'll do whatever to help themselves. And the other thing, um, do you recall when I told you that Bobby would often work with special needs inmates? Yeah, they don't usually live in the same reality that we do, so who knows what they actually saw or what they think they actually saw. 
That guy might have thought he's seen them sitting on a porch drinking tea, but he also might have thought he saw a flock of endangered flying coyotes. And the warden isn't going to let himself look bad for literally handing Dial everything he could possibly need to escape from prison for murder. So he blames Bobby instead. And for a while, that's really all anybody had to go on anyway. Information wasn't as widely available back then, so I can see how you'd get from A to B if you just saw the major elements. Plus, also not long after this was the Oklahoma City bombing, and that sort of derailed the investigation on finding Bobby. Kind of a big deal, it was. But I know this is a lot, so what do you say we wrap this up here? There were a few TV specials about this. One on Unsolved Mysteries, and another on America's Most Wanted. Nailed it! In 2005, a man who saw the America's Most Wanted episode rerun logged on to their website, looked at the pictures of Dial and Bobby, and calmly said, Oh, fuck, those people are right up the road! So he calls the FBI, and they show up to do their thing. They watched the house for a few days, making sure it was them, and then they waited until he was alone. Where's this house, you might wonder? I'll tell you. They were living the high life. Top of the world, been on the run for 10 years, living in a mobile home on a chicken farm in Camp T, Texas. Where? Yeah. April 4th, 2005. They finally catch up to him. They arrest Dial. When they arrested Dial, he was cooking a steak, and he had a loaded gun on the table because of fucking course he did. And when they found Bobby, by the way, she was working up the road, alone, mowing the lawn, at a different chicken farm. Really? Also, while they were in Camp T, Dial was once special guest of honor at a women's group luncheon for art shit, and guess who wasn't there? Weird. And no, they weren't really going by their real names. They would be called Richard and Samantha Deal which is almost the same name for him. Fucking come on, dude. Yeah, that's dumb. And so they started questioning some of the people that they'd worked for on a third chicken farm. I can't remember if it was a man or a woman, but I think it was a woman. She was immediately suspicious of the two as a couple. See these air quotes? Dial would always stay inside to work on art stuff because he didn't want to clean chicken shit, so he made Bobby do it, and... This woman would constantly find Bobby just crying out in the chicken coops, just taking a little bit of time to herself and decompressing, crying it out, I guess. She also witnessed quite a bit of DV between the two. DV is domestic violence, if you don't know. I just abbreviated it because I've been typing for a fucking week and I was tired of reading it. If anybody would ask Bobby, now Samantha, why she didn't just leave, she would make all kinds of excuses. I can't take the risk of Dial using his connections to harm her family. You know, for all she knows, he's telling the truth. She at one point said, Nothing made sense in the environment I lived in, in the world I lived in. It was insanity. Trauma bonds and Stockholm Syndrome are so powerful I have syndrome. And I gotta say, real quick, I've seen a ton of naysayers and the like that are very quick to ask. She can go anytime she wants, so since she stayed, she must be in love. Well, why didn't she just leave? Where the fuck is she gonna go? She's in the middle of goddamn nowhere in Texas in a mobile home that's connected to some sort of larger network of chicken ranches. Where? In Camp T, Texas? Where the fuck is that? How do I get home from here if I do escape? Where is home from here? How do I get a car? 
What if he's actually got connections? So many different things have to line up for that to be an actual possibility to just leave. Think about the relationship you wish your friend would just leave, or the one you may have been through or might still be in. It's not that easy. But against all odds, Bobby's found alive and safe. A little worse for wear, but otherwise, physically, she's fine. And she's very quickly reunited with her family. And Randy, gotta love him, he never, he never once gave up hope that she was alive and never believed that she ran away willingly. Randy wanted nothing more than for things to go back to normal and pick up where they left off. But Bobby would gonna take a little more time to readjust. I was just a held prisoner against my will for 10 years on a fucking chicken farm. It's gonna take me a little bit of time. After Dial was arrested during an interview, he said she was not willing. I drugged her abducted her at knife point, I was the one driving, and I kept her in line through psychological torture and threats through my connections. And he was only charged with escape. No kidnapping charge was ever filed against Randolph Dial. What the fuck, Oklahoma? Come on. But the next three years would be reasonably quiet. Bobby and Randy both getting used to having a normal life again. And then something unexpected but kind of awesome happens. In 2007, Dial dies in prison after dealing with some kind of lingering illness so long, fuckface. <laughs> Good. Don't need that guy around. But then, in 2008, the DA brings charges against Bobby for assisting a prisoner escape, but then that trial doesn't start until 2011 for some stupid reason. But now she's being sued and for helping him escape. Or not sued, I don't know if sued's the right word, but now she has to go to trial for this. In 2011, she hires defense attorney Garvin Isaacs. If that name sounds familiar to you, he was also involved in the... He was also the defense attorney for Gene Leroy Hart during the Girl Scout murders. In the mobile home on the Chicken Ranch hive mind, they found condoms and a vibrator in one of the bedrooms. So? Along with 800 other pieces of evidence, Valentine's Day letters, love letters, a note that she wrote to him after he had a heart attack and was recovering... Prosecutors all look at this stuff, and they think that it points to a consensual relationship. Isaacs told the jury, told jurors, that the state's case was built on faulty speculation, outright fabrication, and the suspicious testimony of convicted felons. Fucking thank you, Garvin Isaacs. But it was still too painful for Bobby to testify, a little too traumatic to talk about, and they probably won't believe me anyway. So they convict her for aiding in the escape of a prisoner, and sentence her to a year in prison. She gets out in six months on good behavior, though, since, you know, she'd already been used to being a prisoner for the last ten years by this point. And I don't know where she is now, but I hope she's doing great. I hope the family's found happiness. And I know that's a crazy story. I know that's a lot to take in. And I know this might sound weird, but I can sort of relate to Bobby in a way here. Some of you know this, some of you don't. But I quit drinking about 18 months ago, and it was by a wide, wide margin the best thing I've ever done for myself. It was a huge problem for me for about 14 years, basically from the time I was allowed to drink it at home until I stopped. And I feel like I kind of developed a sort of trauma bond with my alcoholism. It was always my way out, my way in, my next thought, when can I get drunk again? I was always trying to appease the alcohol that I knew wanted so bad to be in me. 
and I eventually started getting sick and tired of being sick and tired all the time and dove into my subconscious to really get to the root of it all. When I did, it was like a light switch flipped off in my brain. When the FBI raided the chicken farm that day in 2005 and asked Bobby Parker who she was, when she said her real name for the first time in 10 years, she said, my name is Bobby Parker. That feeling, that realization, that intense wave of emotions, that hits me in the exact same place in my brain as the booze switch that I turned off. It's over. It's f I can finally go home. I can be me again. I can live my life, my actual life. Not this haze of half-remembered nights and constant neck twitches. I can start to figure it out. I felt the full weight of that sentence when I watched the Dateline interview, and I can say with full confidence, I believe you, Bobby Parker. Not only is it her truth, but it's also the truth. And there you have it, everybody. Bobby, I hope, is doing well now that she's out of this whole mess for good. Again, if you do ever happen to listen one day, I sincerely hope you and your family are doing well. As for the rest of you, thank you so, 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 so much for listening. I look forward to doing this a little bit more every week, and I'm really excited to hear what you think about this one. There's also quite a bit of other stuff that I had to leave out for time constraints, and it's just as crazy as the other stuff, and a lot of it's pretty funny. I, I think there was a quote at one point during a prison fight. Somebody called Dial a honky popcorn motherfucker. <laughs> but I couldn't find a way to put it in the main story, but that one's funny, so that one stuck out to me. If you want to read the book, again, it's called In the Wind by Randolph Franklin Dial. It's on Kindle for like 12 bucks. You don't need a Kindle, apparently. Just download the Kindle app. You can get it. That's what I did. It's cool if you want to start reading more books but don't have an e-reader like me. You could do that too. Start getting into it. But you'll probably be confused and screaming at the pages the entire time. Oh my god. One of the guys in the book had a hilarious quote. He said, I've never heard of a hillbilly in Kansas. You, my friend, have never been to Kansas. <laughs> And there's lots of other stuff like that in the book. So if you do get it, enjoy. Anyway, let me know what you guys think of that story over everywhere you can. Don't forget to go do all the free stuff wherever you can, whenever you can. Until then, um, I got to go make all the sound effects for this episode. So I'll see you guys next week. Stay kind. <laughs>